Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor-in-chief of the New Books Network, and I'm happy to say that the following interview is brought to you with permission by the excellent podcast, Who Makes Sense? A History of Capitalism. I hope that you enjoy this episode, and I hope that you visit Who Makes Sense? In last month's interview with Deb Cowan, we heard about how the field of logistics shapes how we experience the world and how logistics evolved and incorporates techniques from the military. On today's show, we follow those lessons through the lens of aviation and the history of airplanes, which also have been consistently intertwined with the history of militarism. As last month's interview clarified, at the heart of capitalism is movement. Marx described capital, for example, as value in motion, and airplanes, as today's guest shows, enabled a new perspective on motion, space, travel, time, and even our perceptions and thinking of the global. Today, we talk with Jennifer Van Vleck about how the history of aviation provides a framework to interpret the history of capitalism and U.S. foreign relations across the 20th century. You are listening to Who Makes Sense, a History of Capitalism podcast. I'm Betsy Beasley. And I'm David Stein. Who Makes Sense is a monthly podcast devoted to bringing you engaging stories that explain how capitalism has changed over time. We interview historians and social and cultural critics about capitalism's past, highlighting the political and the economic changes that have created the present. Today, we speak with Jennifer Van Vleck. I'm Jennifer Van Vleck, and I'm Assistant Professor of History and American Studies at Yale University. Thank you for joining us, Jennifer. Can you tell our listeners a little about your book? Sure. My book is called Empire of the Air, Aviation and the American Ascendancy. And it uses aviation as a lens onto the origins, meanings, and effects of the United States' rise as a global power during the 20th century. And there's really two components. Uh, First, I look at aviation as a way of understanding the material infrastructure of U.S. global power, that is, its technological and economic foundations. But I also write about how ideas about aviation in American culture transformed Americans' perceptions of the world world and the United States global responsibilities. So perhaps because it's a book about aviation, your readers travel with you to many locales. Can you describe for us the scope of the book and the narrative arc? The book begins with the Wright brothers 
and ends really in the, the 1970s with kind of the deregulation of the airline industry and the demise of Pan American Airways, which is kind of my main protagonist, um, as well as other flagship airlines. Um, so it really it, it encompasses most of the 20th century. And I think the narrative arc of the project is really neatly encapsulated by Pan Am's changing logos. And I actually read about this in the introduction. So, uh, so I begin by discussing how aviation as a, trans, as a technology that was fundamentally transnational in origin and had been developed in kind of Europe and the United States simultaneously became really Americanized in the early 20th century century and seen as a result of the Wright brothers' invention as a quintessentially American technology that was forged on U.S. soil and reflected quintessential American characteristics of pioneering and ingenuity and free enterprise. And then the remainder of the book the second chapter focuses on Pan Am's expansion in Latin America. So that's where it flew its first roots. And so I write about these three logos. And Pan Am's first logo was essentially a depiction of the Western Hemisphere with wings. And then this, the second logo, which originated in the 1940s, depicted an Atlantic world that also encompassed Africa and Europe. So kind of the middle portion of the book focuses on that transition from Latin America to flying across the Atlantic and Pacific and the truly global expansion of U.S. power um, in the era of World War II. And then finally, the latter chapters focus on the jet age and Pan Am's iconic post-war logo depicts a world that is only divided by latitudes and longitudes. There are literally no nations or continents or any kind of geopolitical units depicted on this map. And so I argue that these logos can be seen not only as a kind of allegory of Pan Am's literal expansion from the Western Hemisphere to the world, but also as a kind of metaphor for uh, changing conceptions of the United States' role in the world and the increasing the, the notion that the, the, the world was increasingly available to the United States as a sphere of influence. Was there a key piece of evidence that catalyzed the research process that led to this book? My research process was somewhat circuitous. It was definitely not a direct flight. The book is based on my dissertation. Uh, and the kind of evidence that I ended up using in the book uh, was very different from the kind of evidence that I thought I was going to use and that I had thought that I that this was really going to be a cultural history of aviation. So I planned on using a lot of visual sources, a lot of advertisements, a lot of airline industry sources. What I didn't anticipate was the extent to which it would also be about U.S. foreign relations. So the book really relies a lot upon State Department documents as well as those other cultural sources that I had expected to use. But in terms of conceptualizing the project, the first piece of evidence that drew me to the project was the movie Catch Me If You Can with Leonardo DiCaprio, which I saw in graduate school, my second year of graduate school, when I was enrolled in a seminar called The American Century with Professor John Christoph Agnew, who ultimately became my advisor. And I saw this movie when I was in the process of trying to come up with a paper topic. And I suddenly became fascinated by the name of this airline. Like, why is it called Pan Am? That implies some kind of connection with Latin America. And I, of course, had known about Pan Am's kind of cultural, iconic cultural status 
you know, which that movie, you know, so wonderfully captured. Um, but the movie suggested, the, the movie made me think that there was also this broader kind of U.S. foreign relations history. And so that was what I ended up writing the paper on that became the dissertation that became the book. Could you say a bit about what drew you to some of these questions in the first place? Sure. Yeah. So as I say in the acknowledgments of my book, I'm always surprised that I ended up writing about aviation. And I do have a personal connection to the subject. Both of my grandfathers were aviators in World War II, and I grew up in Dayton, Ohio, which was the birthplace of the Wright brothers. But really, those two things were were kind of disincentives because I remember growing up always going on school trips and trips with my grandfathers to uh, to the National Air Force Museum which is at Wright-Patterson Air Force Base in Dayton. And I always remember feeling, as a little kid, feeling so bored on those trips, just thinking, like, why are people so fascinated by these old airplanes, right? Um, But then I ended up, between college and graduate school, I ended up working for five years in New York at the height of the first dot-com boom. And I was working basically as a website editor and producer. So I was kind of in this milieu in which people were really talking about the internet, like it was going to be some kind of great global savior. And so I became really interested in perceptions of technology and in particular the ways in which technology has kind of both nationalist and internationalist or globalist connotations. Like on the one hand, people were talking about the internet as this great kind of catalyst of globalization. On the other hand, many of the the most important and powerful technology companies were U.S. companies. Mm -hmm. And so I was curious about exploring that tension in previous periods um, in history. And then finally, the topic really just kind of brought together the various fields of scholarship that I'm interested in. So namely the history of U.S. foreign relations, the history of technology, cultural, cultural history, and then business history. Many business leaders like to say, As Mitt Romney infamously put it in his 2012 campaign, we built that. But one of the things that your story reveals is the role of the U.S. government in supporting aviation and Pan Am. Can you walk our listeners through some of the history of governmental involvement in the airlines? Absolutely. One of the things that I find most fascinating about aviation history is that the aviation industry and the airline industry in particular um, is one of the few that has actually demanded its own regulation. And there are sound business reasons for doing this because in the 20s and even in the 30s, flying was still very much considered kind of a daredevil sport. And in the industry's infancy, when there weren't a lot of regulations um, concerning safety and you know navigation and other kinds of procedures, a lot of people, understandably, were really afraid to fly. So airlines actually called for the federal government to step in and to insist upon things like, you know, like standards for, you know, for lighting of runways and things like this and, you know, other kinds of passenger safety regulations. So, so I've always found, found that, that really interesting in terms of the aviation industry's relationship with the U.S. government. And then I think another point that I make in the, the book that the other aviation historians have, have, have also made 
is that really this industry could not have gotten off the ground without significant government assistance. And so this really came in two forms. First, in terms of subsidies from the post office, because in the 20s and 30s, especially in terms of international aviation, planes were were so small that airlines could not rely upon passenger revenue alone. So they depended upon postal subsidies. And then the second form of governmental assistance came in the form of support for aviation manufacturers and technological innovations that initially had military purposes, but then also were used in uh, civilian and commercial air transport. And one of the most famous examples of that, of course, is the jet engine. What do you see as some of the political implications of businesses relying on the state in this way? My book really focuses on this question, I think, in the context of U.S. foreign relations. Pan American Airways is a classic example of what's called a chosen instrument. That is a private corporation that has been entrusted either formally or informally to carry out state priorities in foreign policy. And so Pan Am's early expansion in Latin America is a classic example of this kind of chosen instrument relationship. Basically, during the Coolidge and the Hoover administrations, which famously were, you know, took a hands-off approach to to foreign policy and really allowed American businesses to do their own thing internationally, Pan Am was, in many cases, one of the premier embodiments of U.S. power in other countries. And it was famously stated that, that that one could get more information about what was happening in a particular country from the local Pan Am station agent than they could get from the ambassador or people at the embassy. So Pan Am was really kind of empowered to, to be the representative of the United States on the ground in Latin America during the 20s and the 30s, and also to kind of be the, the eyes and ears. And one of the things that I was found fascinating when I started my research was reading all of this correspondence between the State Department and Pan Am executives. It was not necessarily even simply about aviation matters. It was about U.S.-Latin American relations more broadly and what the U.S. could be doing better in order to advance its economic and political interests in these countries where Pan Am had a presence. But I should say, though, that I think there is a risk in using this chosen instrument interpretive framework. I guess I should say, I think there's a risk of viewing state and corporate interests as completely identical and intertwined. And so one of the things that I noticed, especially in the post-World War II period, is that Pan Am's corporate interests and Washington's diplomatic interests in many cases diverged and conflicted. So I think that on the one hand, it's important to understand the ways in which Pan Am and the airline industry kind of more broadly, uh, you know, did have this very close relationship to the State Department in Washington. But nonetheless, they were never simply kind of tools of the U.S. government. A big part of your book is detailing how Pan Am was incorporated into U.S. military operations, especially during World War II where they could engage in operations that, for practical reasons, the military could not. For example, you detail the airport development program, which you call a quasi-military operation in commercial camouflage. Can you tell us about this program and other overlaps between military and commercial interests? 
Yeah, so there are really two important instances in which Pan Am became a kind of de facto arm of the U.S. military. The first is the airport development program in Latin America uh, during World War II. And so basically this was a program, as its name suggests, to develop airports um, throughout uh, Central America, South America, and the West Indies in the early 40s. And the concern was that these countries did not have sufficient defenses if there were to be a German attack. And so Pan Am already had operating rights in these countries. And so the State Department basically set up an arrangement whereby Pan Am would improve the airports that it was already operating in these Latin American countries with state and war department funding. So this was a way for the U.S. government to bolster the defenses of the Western Hemisphere at a time when the U.S. was not formally in the war. And it was also a convenient fiction that Pan Am was purely doing this as a way of transitioning from seaplanes to land planes. That was what Pan Am said to Latin American governments at the time. Whereas in reality, this was a program that was intended uh, to essentially safeguard the Western Hemisphere against Nazi attacks. And then military objectives of securing the Western Hemisphere coincided with Pan Am's commercial objectives of uh, improving these airports, which it already had the contracts to do. And of course, of course, the U.S. couldn't just simply send the U.S. Army Corps of Engineers into these other countries to strengthen their runways and things like that. That would have been a blatant violation of the good neighbor policy, not to mention other countries' sovereignty. But doing it through this private corporation um, allowed the U.S. to obtain those military objectives without risking diplomatic uh, discord um, or violation of the United States' own neutrality at this time. And then so the second example of this kind of collaboration between um, military and commercial interests was um, in 1941, Pan Am began, op began operating an airlift across Africa. And so this was essentially an airlift that had been run by the Royal Air Force, but it was kind of in shambles and the RAF desperately needed plant planes to defend Britain itself. So Pan Am ended up, take ended up taking it over. So then after the Lend-Lease Act was passed, what happened was that Pan Am planes would ferry Lend-Lease supplies from the United States itself to South America via the airports that had been improved or built under the airport development program, and then across the Atlantic Ocean to the west coast of Africa, and then across the African continent itself to points even further east, such as India and China. So it was a very, it was a very important supply route, and military historians have argued that it played a key role in enabling Allied victories in North Africa. One thing that you stress in the book is that U.S. power was not a one-way street, that the countries that U.S. aviation reached also played a part in negotiating U.S. power. Can you tell us more about this point? Yeah, so I think that in recent scholarship in, on the history of U.S. foreign relations, there really has been much more of an emphasis on the multi-directional and multi-dimensional nature of power in contrast to some earlier accounts, which I think emphasized the United States global ascendance, possibly at the expense of 
noting its limitations, challenges, and contradictions. So, so I tried to show that by also examining the ways in which other countries responded to the expansion of U.S. aviation and U.S. global power in general. So I think one of, one of my favorite examples of these kinds of dynamics is the case of Afghanistan. In the 1950s, the U.S. and the Afghan government signed a series of agreements that basically enabled Pan Am to acquire a controlling share of the Afghan national airline, Ariana. And this was part of an overall program of technical assistance to Afghanistan that in turn was part of the United States' broader objective of modernizing the so-called third world in the Cold War. And so the, the idea was that if, if the U.S. gave Afghanistan money to have a modern functioning airline, then this would be one way of convincing Afghanistan to be on the United States side during the Cold War. So it was very, for the U.S., this whole aviation assistance project was very much framed within the context of Cold War objectives. But Afghanistan didn't see it that way. At the time, the Afghan royal government was ruled by Western-educated technocrats, who very much wanted to modernize their country as well, but for their own reasons. In particular, the royal government was controlled by the Pashtun elite. And so they had both nationalist and specifically ethno-nationalist agendas of attaining modernization to increase Afghanistan's global power and national greatness. So they very much viewed Ariana and U.S. technical insistence generally not as a way of aligning Afghanistan with the United States in the Cold War, but again of enhancing Afghanistan's national greatness. And the argument specifically was that Afghanistan had formerly been an important world crossroads in the era of the Silk Road. And because in the air age, many strategic global air routes traversed Afghanistan. They also believed that this would, the aviation development would be a way of restoring Afghanistan's national greatness and global power. So again, they were very much using U.S. technical assistance for their own purposes. And Afghanistan also at the same time was accepting technical assistance and funding from the Soviet Union and very astutely played each superpower off one another in order to obtain the government's own goals. One reason why I like that example, too, is because it underscores that aviation had distinct meanings in different places, that, yes, it was this globalizing technology that almost everywhere had these connotations of being modern, right? But it also, in every country, just as in the United States, people understood the airplane as some kind of symbol of American greatness and American exceptionalism. This was true almost everywhere else. And there's been a lot of important scholarship recently on aviation development in other countries that has fleshed out the, its particular meanings in different national contexts. You describe how tourism was promoted as a solution to some of the international economic problems following World War II. Can you elaborate on your discussion of tourism and its role in Cold War economic and political policy? Yeah, so tourism was essentially viewed as a kind of privatized form of foreign aid. So almost as a privatized 
supplement to or increasingly alternative to the Marshall Plan. So the idea was that Americans would go abroad and spend money, and this would help revive local economies. And this was particularly important in post-war Western Europe, whose economies had been devastated by the war and whose allegiance was increasingly crucial in the context of the emerging Cold War. But then also in the the late 50s and 60s, as the United States increasingly turned its attention to nations in the developing world, tourism as well became a strategy for for courting so-called hearts and minds in the discourse of the time. The idea was that American tourists would be kind of good ambassadors of the American way of life. Um, And again, in a way that would not necessitate um, spending millions of dollars on things like technical assistance programs to developing countries. But it was... It was challenging, of course, because tourists did not always behave in the way that the State Department wanted them to behave. And getting back to this question as to kind of opposition to U.S. global power or critiques or pushback, there's many instances of local businesses resisting the intrusion of American tourists and really trying to maintain their own distinct national identities. I should say that there's there's also an institutional component to this. The State Department actually set up a division uh, that aimed to promote tourism and travel specifically. And there is another component. The airlines themselves were very concerned with promoting tourism abroad. But interestingly, though, by the end of the 1960s, there is this so-called travel deficit in the context of some of the other you know, economic problems that the United States is facing, that, that the Johnson administration actually starts telling Americans to stop traveling abroad, to stop spending their money in other countries, and instead to travel within the United States. And the airline industry, too, gets in on this campaign. I mean, Pan Am, uh, which was exclusively an international airline at that point, was focusing not only on getting Americans to, to travel abroad, but increasingly on trying to get people from other countries to, to travel to the United States. So their advertising strategies in the late 60s really shift. So they're still advertising foreign travel for Americans, but increasingly they're also advertising the virtues of the United States itself as a tourist destination. In recent years, historians have been trying to think beyond national borders. And your book helps show some of the history of this idea, asking us to historicize the idea of the global itself. Can you tell our listeners about how you achieve this through weaving together cultural and diplomatic and economic history? So really, my kind of highest aspiration for this book is that it would be one way of understanding how Americans came to think about the global as a a category of analysis and as a, a, a sphere of influence. So I was really interested in how the category of the global had been constructed over time. And in this, I was inspired um, by by previous work on nationalism. So particularly Benedict Anderson's famous book, Imagine Communities, in which he argues that print culture was formative to people's understandings of themselves as members of particular national communities. And so I wanted to, and so this this is why I think that culture can be a really useful way of understanding these 
these kinds of these kinds of terms and concepts and categories. And so for me, I think the, one of my richest sources was visual culture and representations of the world because representations of the world literally changed with the advent of the airplane. There were new kinds of maps that were being created that focused on the world being portrayed from a polar perspective, from, from the top down, rather than from the hemispheric perspective of the, of the Mercator map, which is a representation of the world which is very conducive to a maritime area, era, um, whereas the era of flight, especially because the shortest international air routes go across the top of the Earth's Earth surface, so-called great circle routes. So the airplane literally fostered new ways of seeing the world. So that was the kind of evidence that I was trying to use in reconstructing how Americans came to see the world in new ways at this point. And these kinds of maps, I should add, are all over the place in popular culture. They're published in magazines like Life and Time, which have circulations of millions. They're in advertising. They're in films. Um, at the same time that all of this is happening in the cultural realm, the State Department is basically trying to figure out how to how to exert U.S. influence in the world beyond its traditional sphere of influence in the Western Hemisphere. So a great example of this is during World War II, Roosevelt's geographer, Isaiah Bowman, literally redrew uh, re the map of the Western Hemisphere such that the Western Hemisphere would encompass Iceland and Greenland. Why Iceland and Greenland? Well, the northern territories of the Earth had, had acquired increasing strategic importance with the advent of the airplane and with the advent of strategic bombing. And the idea was that in the future, and of course this has happened, in the future planes would be able to fly directly from, say, the Soviet Union to the United States over these northern territories. That was the quickest way to get there. And so it was crucial for the United States to have air bases and to have some kind of presence in these regions of the world. So I think that that, I mean, that's one example, I think, of how we can see kind of the, the cultural, the diplomatic, and indeed the military realm all converging in, in fostering a new conception of the global. Your book has a lot of lessons for the present. How does the history you tell relate to our contemporary moment, especially since 9-11? So I think a couple of things. So in the epilogue of my book, I talk about nostalgia for the golden age, the so-called golden age of air travel in contemporary culture. And as manifestations of this, I cite movies like Catch Me If You Can, ABC's um, short-lived series called Pan Am, Mad Men, you know, all these kind of representations of mid-century air travel as being very glamorous and sophisticated and certainly very different, you know, than our own experiences of flying, at least if you're in, if you're not in first class, you know, it, it certainly now does not, air travel does not conjure uh, the kind of expansive utopian connotations that it used to at one point. But I also think that a lot, a lot of that nostalgia is somewhat misguided. And one of the surprising things that I found in my research is that was that passenger, air travel passengers of the 50s and 60s were complaining about many of the things that we complain about today. I mean, long delays at the airport, um, missed flights. So I certainly think that there that there's an element of nostalgia there that 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 is misplaced. But but what I find most interesting about this whole nostalgia phenomenon is that I think that it's it's about 
nostalgia for more than this kind of imagined golden age of air travel. I think it's also about nostalgia for a time in which it seemed like the United States place in the world was much more secure. And in a sense, it's kind of a nostalgia for a so-called American century. Um, so I think that, I think the discourse on air travel right now in many ways seems much more focused on kind of mundane concerns and complaints about uh, inconveniences and, of course, uh, security concerns. But I also think that if we look at it historically, there's a way in which commentary about air air travel for quite some time has been a way of thinking about American internationalism. And I think that there are vestiges of that in the present moment. And then, of course, I think the other the other prominent example right now of connections between the history that I wrote about and the contemporary moment um, is the use of drones and debates concerning drone strikes. And and these debates are, are, you know, are really kind of continuing much older debates that began with the advent of strategic bombing about, you know, this this kind of technology gives us the illusion that we can do, you know, that, that, that we can do things such as surgical strikes, right? That, you know, that, that we can have a kind of sanitized version of warfare that doesn't involve kind of messy, bloody, you know, on the ground realities. But of course we know that this is, this is a complete fiction. So, so it's been, it's been interesting for me to, you know, to follow a lot of these debates about um, the use of drone warfare, particularly, particularly in the Obama administration. Um, and, Cause I think it's, you know, it's, it's, it's an escalation of, these kinds of previous technologies, but very much kind of continuing these debates about, you know, is, you know, what really, what is the morality of, of air power and how do we do, how do we think about questions of morality in the context of warfare? Um, and really, is there a techno, is there a technological solution to what are fundamentally political problems? I mean, I think to me that that's really the question that, that resonates most in the contemporary moment. And that question I think pertains not only to aviation, but to many other things. I mean, I, you know, previously brought up my experience working, you know, in New York in the dot-com boom in Silicon Alley. And I think that there, there are a lot of parallels too in the ways that we talk about the internet, you know, as having these kinds of, you know, both nationalist and globalist connotations. If you liked our show, make sure to check us out at whomakesensepodcast.com. Like us on Facebook at facebook.com slash whomakesense. And follow us on Twitter at whomakesense. And let us know if there are topics that you want to know more about. You can also learn more about Jennifer's work at our website, whomakesensepodcast.com. Who Makes Sense is supported by the Yale Public Humanities Program, and the University of Southern California's Department of American Studies and Ethnicity. Join us next month for more Histories of Capitalism.